0: Welcome to Episode 3 of our series on Travels of Ibn Battuta. In this episode, we will look into his journey across the region of North Africa or commonly known as the Maghreb in the Islamic world. If you have not completed the previous two episodes, we suggest you do so before starting this episode and with that said let's dive into today's episode. An Arab Scholar of Islam, Social Scientist. Philosopher and historian who has been described as the founder of the modern disciplines of historiography, sociology, economics and demography, Abidar Rahman bin Muhammad ibn Khaldun, famously said, "A scholar's education is greatly improved by travelling in quest of knowledge and meeting the authoritative teachers of his time." Numerous people of Tangier had made a trip to the Middle East a large portion of them to complete the Hajj or journey to the holy places of Mecca and Medina in the Hijaz area of Western Arabia. Islam obliged each Muslim who is not ruined, oppressed, insane or imperiled by war or pandemic to go to Mecca at least once in the course of his life and fulfill his religious obligation of as instructed by the Holy Quran. Every year hundreds and regularly, many North Africans satisfied their obligation, participating in a unique custom relocation that united adherents from the most distant corners of the Afro-Eurasian world. In the 14th century, Ibn Battuta, a hopeful traveler of Tangier, decided to go via land or ocean or a blend of the two. Regardless of whether via land or ocean, getting to Mecca was a hazardous undertaking. As sailors needed to overcome storms, pirates, and threatening naval forces, overland explorers stood up to bandits, Migrant raiders, or the chance of discovering a battle between one North African state and another. For the most part, pilgrims picked the overland course across the Maghreb, Libya, and Egypt. This course was indeed essential for an organization of tracks connecting the towns and urban areas of northern Africa with each other. In this way, most pilgrims going overland kept, for security, to each other's organization. Regularly the small convoys that regularly transported between the towns and provincial business sectors. Aside from these small groups of pilgrims and merchants and voyagers organization was the Grand Hajj Caravan, which went each year from Morocco to Cairo. From that point to the Hijaz with the pilgrims from Egypt. Beginning in Fez or Tlemkin, the caravan got gatherings of pilgrims en route like a moving snowball, some of them walking, others riding horses donkeys, jackasses, or camels. When the caravan arrived in Cairo, the total number of pilgrims would be in several thousands. The progression of pilgrims across the almost 3000 miles of the steppe, desert, and mountain isolating Morocco from Mecca was quite possibly the most prominent gathering of the exceptional portability and cosmopolitanism inside the Dar al-Islam in the middle period. For scholarly North Africans, the Hajj was often more than a journey to Mecca and home again. All things considered, it was a Rila, a fantastic report visit through the incredible mosques and madrasas of the heartland of Islam, a chance to get books and confirmations, extend one's information on philosophy and law, and community with refined and acculturated men. On June 14, 1325 Ibn Battuta rode out of Tangier and headed southeastward through the Eastern Reef's highlands to join the main caravan road that ran from Fez to Tlemkin. He was twenty-one years old and eager for more learning, and more adventure, than his native city, could hope to give him. The parting was bittersweet as mentioned in Ibn Battuta book. My departure from Tangier, my birthplace, took place, with the object of making the pilgrimage to the Holy House, at Mecca and Medina, and of visiting the tomb of the Prophet, God's richest blessing and peace be on him, at Medina. I set out alone. Having neither fellow traveller in whose companionship I might find cheer, nor caravan whose party I might join, but swayed by an overmastering impulse within me and a desire long cherished in my bosom to visit these illustrious sanctuaries. So I braced my resolution to quit all my dear ones, female and male, and forsook my home as birds forsake their nests. My parents being yet in the bonds of life, it weighed sorely upon me to part from them, and both they and I were afflicted with sorrow at this separation. Accordingly, it tends to be said that he didn't, it appears, set out from Tangier with any arrangement to join the Hajj caravan, if there was one that year. Regardless, it was anything but a terrible year for a youngster to travel forward completely all alone as political conditions in the western Maghreb were unnormally quiet. Riding toward the east through Morocco's hilly inside and afterwards onto the high fields that extended into the central Maghreb, Ibn Batuta arrived at Tlemcen. Capital of the Abad al Wadid state, in about half a month. Even though Tlemkan was a bustling business travel focus and mentally the liveliest city any place among Fez and Tunis, he didn't wait there. After showing up, he discovered that two agents from the SID Sultanate of the had been in the city on a strategic mission and had quite recently left. Somebody encouraged Ibn Battuta to find them and their escort and continue to Tunis and their organization's well being but Ibn Battuta took the lonelier pilgrimage trail running northeastward through a series of river valleys. Arid plains flanked on one side, or the other by the low, fragmented mountain chains broke up the Mediterranean hinterland. This part of the Maghreb was sparsely populated in the 14th century. He might have ridden for several days at a time without encountering any towns, only Berber hamlets and bands of Arabic-speaking camel herders who ranged over the broad, green-brown valleys and depressions. After what must have been two or three weeks on the road, he caught up with the Afrikians at Maliana, a small commercial center in the Zaker Hills overlooking the Kilif River's plain. As an eager scholar that he was, he could hardly have made better choices of his first traveling companions. One of them was Abu Abdallah al-Zubaydi, a prominent theologian, the other Abu Abdallah al-Nafzawi, a Qadi of Tunis. Unfortunately, tragedy struck as soon as Ibn Battuta arrived. The newfound companions fell ill due to the hot weather as it was midsummer and then they were forced to remain in Miliana for ten days. On the eleventh day, the little caravan resumed its journey, but the Qadi grew worse just four miles from the town and died. Al-Zubaydi, in the company of the dead man's son, whose name was Abu al-Tayyib, returned to Miliana for mourning and burial, leaving Ibn Battuta to continue on ahead with a party of Afrikaean merchants. Plunging the precarious inclines of the Zechar, the pilgrims showed up at the port of Algiers, and Ibn Battuta and his first sight of the ocean since leaving Tangier. Algiers was a minor significance position in the 14th century, not the sea capital it would come to be in another 200 years. It had little to offer to an individual from the scholarly class. Ibn Battuta and his merchant mates stayed outdoors outside the city walls for a few days sitting tight for al-Zubaydi and Abu al-Tayyib to make up for the lost time. When they did, the group set out for the port of Bijaya, the western outskirts city of the Hefesid realm. The journey took them straightforwardly toward the east through the core of the Grand Kabylie Mountains, a locale of huge oak and cedar timberlands, fabulous crevasses, and culminations arriving at higher than 6,500 feet. Harsher country than Ibn Battuta had seen since venturing out from home. Bijaya was the first important city where Ibn Battuta had the chance to explore since leaving Tlemkin. Regardless, he was resolved to push on rapidly, and this notwithstanding an assault of fever that left him severely debilitated. Al Zubaydi encouraged him to remain in Bijaya until he recuperated, yet the Ibn Battuta was determined and said, If God decrees my death, then my death shall be on the road. With my face set towards the land of the Hydraz, by and large, Ibn Battuta had the favorable luck to cross Morocco and the Abd al wadid lands during a time of relative peace and harmony. Although Constantine was the biggest city in eastern Maghreb's inside, Ibn Battuta didn't falter there long. Thus, he has little to review about it in the Rila, aside from the one striking actuality that he was privileged to make the acquaintance of the governor. A son of Sultan Abu Bekir of Hef-Sid Sultanate, who came out to the edge of town to invite al Zubaydi. The gathering was an important one for the youthful scholar, Ibn Battuta, because the governor gave him an endowment of contributions. The first of numerous presents he would get from lords and lead representatives throughout his movements. In this occasion, it was two gold dinars and a sensitive woolen mantle to supplant his old one, which by this phase of the excursion was in close. Almsgiving was one of Islam's five sacred pillars, the duty of Muslims to share one's material wealth with others and thus remit it to God. The obligation included voluntary giving, sadaka, to specific classes of people the poor, orphans, prisoners, slaves, for ransoming, fighters in the holy war, and wanderers. Falling famously into the standards of a traveler, Ibn Battuta would, during the following quite a while, see his royal assistance guaranteed, to some degree, by a variety of devout people who were moved to perform thoughtful gestures, the more promptly so since the beneficiary was himself an informed man of honour well deserving of such badge of God's value. Leaving Constantine better dressed and more prosperous, he and his companions travelled Upper East across the more hilly nation, arriving at the Mediterranean again at the port of Buna which today is known as Anaba. In the wake of resting here for a few days in the city walls security. He bade goodbye to the merchants who had gone with him most of the way across the central Maghreb and proceeded toward Tunis with al-Zubadi and Abu al-Tayyib. Presently the small party traveled with as little luggage as possible with the most extreme speed, pushing on evening and day ceaselessly because of a paranoid fear of assault by raiders. Unfortunately, Ibn Battuta was struck by fever and needed to attach himself to his seat with a turban material to shield from tumbling off since they dare not stop for long. Their course took them corresponding to the coast through the high plug and oak timberlands, at that point continuously down out from the Shadows Plain and the far-reaching wheat grounds of Focal From that point, they had a level street along the rich Medjerda river valley toward Tunis's western environs. Tunis was head during the vast majority of the 13th and 14th hundreds of years of all the North African urban communities where craftsmanship and mind thrived. Like other Mariby urban communities of that age, Tunis under the Hafsids constructed its unbelievable mosques and castles, spread out its public gardens, and established its schools and colleges with the abundance that came in huge measure from significant distance trade. In the mid-14th century, Tunis was the busiest of the ports that lay along the monetary outskirts between the European seaborne exchange of the Mediterranean and the African insides Muslim caravan organization. Tunis even kept up close business attaches with Egypt via Muslim beachfront and overland trades. Additionally, Tunis was all-around put to fill in as a critical shop for Christian shippers of the western Mediterranean who thought that it was an advantageous spot to purchase intriguing products of the East without themselves wandering on the journey to Egypt or the Levant. What Ibn Battuta reviews about his sentiments after showing up in Tunis isn't the delight of a traveler who has arrived at one of the incredible focuses of strict learning along the Hajj course, yet the misery of a young fellow in a strange city and is referenced in Israela. The townsfolk came out to welcome the Sheikh Abu Abdallah al-Zubadi and to welcome Abu al-Tayyib, the son of the Qadi Abu Abdallah al-Nafzawi. On all sides, they came forward with greetings and questions to one another. But not a soul said a word of greeting to me since there was none of them that I knew. I felt so sad at heart on account of my loneliness that I could not restrain the tears that started to my eyes, and wept bitterly. Though in no time at all, however, things were looking up as further mentioned in Rila. One of the pilgrims, realizing the cause of my distress, came up to me with a greeting and friendly welcome, and continued to comfort me with friendly talk until I entered the city, where I lodged in the College of the Booksellers. Ibn Battuta showed up in Tunis during a time of relative political quiet. Sultan Abu Bekr celebrated Eid al-Fitr, hosted a feast celebrating the end of Ramadan, the Muslim month of fasting during sunshine hours. Ibn Battuta was close by to observe the Sultan satisfy his legal obligation of leading a magnificent parade of authorities, retainers. And warriors from the bastion to an exciting outside asking ground that obliged the groups assembled for the petitions denoting the breaking of the fast. Ibn Battuta went through around two months in Tunis, showing up certain days before September 10, 1325, and leaving toward the beginning of November. Ibn Battuta invested the greater part of his energy in the city's honorable men researchers organization. He may be sure have had the openness to a portion of the famous Maliki ulama of the century. The half-SID rulers were placing Maliki researchers to high places of state in the madrasas, where Maliki juridical writings were the core of the educational plan. During the earlier century, Tunis had been a shelter for influxes of Muslims emigrating from Andalusia in the wake of the Spanish Reconquista. Of all the North African urban areas with Iberian drop populaces, Tunis had the liveliest and generally beneficial. The Andalusian strain appears to be clear in Ibn Battuta's own courteous character and we can think about what preparing impact two months in Tunis among such individuals may have had. He left Tunis as the delegated cadi of a convoy of travelers, and this was his first authority post as a yearning law specialist. A hajj procession was such a community and required proper initiative, a leader or, a mere, who had all the power of the captain of a boat, and a cadi, who mediated debates and along these lines maintained harmony and control among the pilgrims. The principal convoy corps drove toward the south along Tunisia's rich littoral of olive and organic product forests and through a progression of occupied oceanic urban communities, Susa, Sfax, Gebas. A few miles south of Gebas, the street turned suddenly toward the east with the coast, running between the island of Djerba on one side, the edge of the Sahara on the other. The following significant stop was Tripoli, the last metropolitan station of the Hef area. The area of Tripolitania, today a piece of Libya, denoted the eastern furthest point of the island Maghreb geologically. From here, the coastline ran southeastward for more than 400 miles, cutting further constantly into the climatic zone of the Sahara until desert and water met up. Further on, the land sticks unexpectedly toward the north again into scopes of higher precipitation. Here was the very much populated area of Cyrenaica with its timberlands and pasturelands and fallen Roman towns. If Tripolitania was verifiably and socially the Maghreb's end, Cyrenaica was the Middle East's start. The two parts of Libya isolated one from the other by a few hundred miles of sand and ocean. In Tripoli, be that as it may, Ibn Battuta chose to leave the primary gathering, which waited in the city due to rain and cold and pushes on ahead with a small group of Moroccans, probably leaving his judgeship, at any rate briefly, in possession of a subordinate. Some place close to the poor town of Sirte, a band of Cameliers attempted to assault the little party. However, as indicated by the Rila, the divine will redirected them and kept them from doing us hurt that they had expected. In the wake of arriving at Cyrenaica and well being, Ibn Battuta waited for the rest of the group to join them back from Tunis. At some point in the pre spring or spring of 1326, the band arrived at Alexandria at the Nile Delta's western end. As trips through northern Africa went, Ibn Battuta oversaw it in less time than numerous voyagers, covering the over 2,000 miles in about eight or nine months. On the off chance that now he had been in a rush to get to the Hijaz, he might have proceeded across the delta and the Sinai Peninsula, getting the Egyptian parade course to Mecca. However, the following journey season was as yet eight months away, managing the cost of him a lot of time to explore the Nile Valley as any genuine researcher pioneer did he offered his appreciation to cairo which in the primary portion of the 14th century was the top scholarly capital of the arabic talking world and the biggest city in the half of the globeny place west of china thanks for watching episode 3 of our series on travels of ibn batuta stay tuned for episode 4 in which we will look into the mamluki and sultanate of egypt palestine and syria